the Wandering Berry Center podcast. I'm your host, Brian. On the other side is Alex. Welcome. So, I was just reading a podcast on the subreddit the other day, Ooh. and somebody made the claim that something like 140 to 150 new podcasts happen per day. Like new shows <laughs> so, or new episodes? Like new shows is what I think they were claiming. Really? So that kind of got me like, wow, we gotta do more. Hmm. Per day, we got a lot of mess to wade through. True. Yeah, but I think there's a lot, if you go on and check them out, like, there's a lot that, you know, we'll try an episode or two and then that's it. Sure, sure. Like, no no persistence. But that's a, hmm. It's a big stat though, right? Mm Mm-hmm. How credible was the source? It was Reddit, so not. (laughs) <laughs> was it an article posted on reddit or somebody's comment somebody ranting mm. but i can't imagine it's well I, I really have no basis for comparison i suppose but you know it's gonna be it's gonna be a good number of them per day it's I gotta imagine. be some number that's always a wild thing you also um, don't want it to be zero because that means nobody's interested anymore it. yeah yeah it's true um i do have another update um some space news Ooh, i'm ready uh so we landed on mars or at least another robot did oh yeah yeah a couple uh couple what was that two weeks ago it was like the couple days after thanksgiving yeah yeah about a week ago Uh, i think the insight rover yeah we're gonna check out some mars quakes (laughs) that's right so, um, yeah, if you haven't, go check it out. The InSight rover landed mm-hmm. on uh, Mars just after Thanksgiving. There's a really cool, they did the whole live feed from the control room. Right. And, it's, I mean, Did it's, you get to watch any of that? I did watch it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I had you to watched go back it live? To, no, no, I okay. had to go back after the fact. Yeah, I went back. I meant to watch it live because I had time, but then I forgot somehow. So I'm disappointed in myself, but. <laughs> uh, but one thing I. I've seen it a couple times now, and it's always really noticeable to me, at least. Uh, you know, these people, these men and women, have been working on this project sometimes for a decade. Oh yeah, and it all hinges on you know the anticipation of those final ten seconds in that countdown, where literally ten years of your life is about to make a break. Mm-hmm. Well, that I think they, they called the, the entry and landing period like the six and a half minutes of terror or something like that yeah, um, I bet. from the moment I bet. where it entered at full speed and basically had to slow itself down from, uh, this could be the wrong figure, but I want to say like 15,000 miles an hour or something like that. It had to slow itself down and land. So that six and a half minute period where that was happening was stressful. Yeah, it's it's the it's the moment or the moment in time where the most can go wrong. Mm-hmm. So, so from yeah, what I understand, the the thing is not going to travel around as much as the other Mars rover did. It's going to kind of find its place, and then it's got this, you know, seismograph tool that it's going to dig down like five meters or something like that, and just exactly plant this probe. Right. Yeah. So it's going to take a heat probe. Mm-hmm. And allegedly, it's going to take, I thought this was hilarious, it's going to take about three months to dig five meters. Whoa. Because it's got, it's got to get, it's basically, I, I don't, I'm speculating from this point forward. I imagine it's got a solar panel, right? And it's got a little uh, drill. 
and it's probably going to exhaust its energy f- using the drill probably that, fairly quickly. That reminds me of the time where I tried to drill through a glass bottle to make a lamp, <laughs> and it took forever. <laughs> um, that's a good point, though. Yeah, it might. it's all electrically driven, so it's going to have to yeah. cycle. Yeah. And then the other thing it's going to do once it digs this hole is not only measure, of course, you know, the temperatures and whatnot of what's actually inside the hole, but it's going to, um, the probe itself has little heaters on it. Mm-hmm. So the heat, the probe five meters down is going to heat the ground around it. And then the robot up top is going to measure how long it takes that heat to dissipate. Hmm. And that figure, you know, if you, uh, losing the word, extrapolate it out, there we go, can tell you a lot about you know how quickly the planet dissipates heat and once mm-hmm. you know that figure you can you can infer all kinds of things about the ce- so ultimately what we're trying to do with this probe is learn about the center of of the right uh of the planet so once it digs its its little five meter core thing is it just pretty much stationary for the rest of its mission that's how i understood <clears throat> yeah if you go on the nasa website they actually have some pretty awesome photos like I was going to mention the sunset. Well, they um, I saw some pictures. The first pictures the rover took when it landed, it was like this very fish-eyed lens, but looking straight out from um, where it was landing, which was pretty cool. But they've got a ton think, of stuff like that on the website. Yeah, they do. And definitely one of the cooler ones for me to see was we have our first picture. And if you think about it, we're the, really the first humans ever, at least through a robot to witness a sunset on Mars, and we have a picture of it. And that's just... Oh, I haven't seen that. That's just crazy to me. Hmm. I like how it's it's no longer a question about there being water on Mars. Yeah. Like, yeah. there was this other picture on the, on the site that was just like, yeah, this was created by some sort of water erosion at some point. It was not filled with water, obviously, at the time, but... Um, yeah, it's just kind of cool. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, we landed here, and turns out we found a lake. Oh, there's a big-ass lake over here. <laughs> um, Elon so Musk, yeah. like, flies by in a speedboat. <laughs> I was just, it's funny you bring him up, because I was just about to say... <laughs> he was Dude, I've been here for years. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually just so communicating like, with a robot version of him down here. That's right. The, the real Elon Musk has, has been <clears throat> on Mars mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. years. Um, somebody asked him the other day, uh, they were asking him about his plans and like how long before we're on Mars and all that. And he, so he gives them an answer and part of the answer included like costs Mm -hmm. of getting to Mars. Mm -hmm. So the reporter's follow-up question was, so this is an escape plan for rich people. And Elon looks at him like, what? And proceeds to explain that, no, I mean this is probably the most dangerous thing a human could do. So if you're trying to escape earth via going to Mars, you're, you're way more likely to die on the way to Mars than you are. <laughs> than you, than you are. Whatever you're earth. escaping. Yeah. Yeah. Unless of course it's like the nuclear Holocaust and I suppose, you know, all bets are off, but the reporters in, was insinuating that rich people will just have just a mass exit. And... <laughs> right. Right. And he's like, no, your life is going to suck on Mars for at least the first hundred years. At least longer than that, probably. So I thought thought that was pretty funny. That is funny. 
Okay. Rant, rant over. All right. So my topic, um, it's actually somewhat related to uh, what we were just talking about there, and maybe something we'd all want to escape from eventually. Um, but have you heard of the fourth national climate assessment? Was this the thing that just came out the other day? This is the thing that was not by accident released uh, the day after Thanksgiving. <sighs> I, okay, so I have heard about it. <laughs> and okay. I'll be honest with you, I have tried not to know anything about it because I am willing to, to bet none of it's good. None of it's good. Oh, fuck. <laughs> so, strap but, in. Yeah, but I mean, we don't need to get too you know, dire about it, but I figure it's a good thing to talk about because it's just two more people bring light to it. And, you know, if that yeah. means 10 other people know about it, then good, right? Because and the whole point of releasing it on that day was so that nobody would know about it. Wait, we'll come back to that in a second because what I was going to say quickly was that ultimately, as much as it sucks to confront, mm -hmm. if, if we keep having our heads in the sand, it, it won't get better. Right. So. Well, yeah, uh, so, well, yeah, this wait. is a, um, well, we, you, what were you going to ask? No, just, uh, who re who had control over releasing it, and I can't imagine why they would not want people to know about it. Well, I believe the Trump administration was able oh, to oh. dictate when, it, I believe it was supposed to be released later, and they released it early. Got it. I can't give you specific names about, you know, who they is, but it was an administration decision to release it when they did. Got it. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, so it was released 2 p.m. on Black Friday, which <sighs> here in the U.S. means that, A, everybody's spending either time with family or out shopping or whatever, like that post-Thanksgiving time. Um, so, yeah, it was just an easy way to slide it under the radar and downplay it. <sighs> Great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess backing up a little bit and, um, talking about who, you know, is in charge of this. So there's something called a global change research act, uh, that was passed in 1990 and I'm sure there's plenty of things to it, but one part of it is that it requires, um, that some department called the U S global change research program that they have to deliver a report to Congress and the president. It says no less than every four years. And the goal of the report is three things. So the first one is to integrate, evaluate, and interpret the findings of the program. Okay. Two, analyze the effects of global change. <laughs> Wait, hang on, actually. Yeah, that, that first one is just self-referential. What the fuck is that? One, do the thing. Do the thing. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you got to state it like that, okay, but... I think it's yes. just like a, that one's just like a sanity check to make sure things are still going okay, we're relevant, <laughs> we want to be doing this. Oh man, that's funny. Um, the second point is to analyze the effects of global change on the natural environment, agriculture, energy production and use, land and water resources, transportation, human health and welfare, human social systems, and biological diversity. Damn, that's yep. a big scope. Right. And then the last um, point of the reports is to analyze current trends in global change, both human-induced and natural, and uh, project major trends 
for the subsequent 25 to 100 years is kind of what they're generally looking at. Um, so that's, yeah, so that's part of this whole Global Change Research Act, and this happens at least every four years. Um, okay, so what was just released is actually uh, part two of what they call the Fourth National Climate Assessment, so you might hear it referred to as NCA4, um, and it's actually volume two. So volume one was released back in 2017. And basically the point of volume one was to do the detailed scientific analysis of what's changing, how it's changing, and why it's changing in terms of like the earth system itself, the physical system. Um, and then volume sure. two of what was just released is the things more relevant to you and I, the, um, you know, the outcomes of all this, what it means for us in the next 25 to 100 years. Um so the things that when we read it, you can actually say, wow, that could affect me in this way or whatever. Right. Um, so yeah, so two volumes. Volume one, the science. Volume two, the outcome. Practical um, implications, if you will. Sure. So before we get into the report itself, um, it's actually, you know, I when I went to go look it up, I was expecting to just get the pdf of the report but they actually have a really nice like interactive easy to navigate website that you can go and click around and it's broken up really nicely and um everything is summarized nicely and all that stuff because the actual pdf report that they've been working on you know for years and years at this point is 1600 something pages wow. yeah so <laughs> i was on their website and i went to the download section it was like oh the report in brief it's like, oh, great, that's what I want, the layman's version. That is still 196 pages. Did you read it all? I read some. <laughs> but it's nice because, you know, they have, like, summaries, and then they have more in-depth for the topics, and then if you go into the full 1,600-page Mamma Jamma, you can get all the nitty-gritty details. Um, so I figure what we can do is I can I can shed a little bit about the report itself, uh, which we've done a little bit already, but um, then they kind of give 12 summaries of... Um, so, all right, so the way the paper's broken up is uh, they basically have national topics, and then they also break it down into regions. So national topics are going to be like, how does it affect the community? How does it affect the economy? Water, health, things like that. Right. Um, and then the second part of the paper is it broken into regions. So I can go in and look, how is it going to affect the Northeast? How is it going to affect the Midwest? Things like that. Um, but before you get into those sections, they kind of give you 12 summaries. So I figure we could, and they're short, they're a couple sentences each. Um, so okay. I figure we could at least read those and discuss those. And then if we want to go further, we can maybe pick... Um, one of the specific topics because when you go to the specific topics they kind of have like a key message they call it for each one so it's like five five of the biggest points to be made about you know how it's going to affect water for example um but yeah so i figure we can uh we can go through the 12 um summaries quick maybe not the most exciting thing in the world i understand but i figure this is good for people to know about yeah that this important. exists um, but before we do that, so my initial, you know, anytime something like this comes out, you got to question who's putting it out, 
what's yeah. their, you know, how qualified are they to be doing yeah. this and that type of thing. And what's their angle? Like, well, are they, are they politically motivated? Are they, you know, altruistic, whatever? Well, this, uh, this is a good line here. So it, it kind of tells you about who's doing this. Um, so Noah is the kind of administrative lead agency. Sweet. Good people um, which is good. Then they have like a steering committee that's, um, it's a federal steering committee. So they kind of, you know, from various departments kind of steer the, the paper to where it needs to go. So I guess that could be a little questionable there. Sorry. Um, quick side note. That mm-hmm. term steering committee. <laughs> it sucks, doesn't I it? I just... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know this until right now, but I guess I don't like committees. But um, and just a steering committee is like such a a corporate way to say, yeah, we meet once a month and do nothing. That's what yeah, I we we just try to point the direction of the project <laughs> ambiguously one way or the other. Obviously, that's a huge generalization. There are plenty mm-hmm. of committees, I'm sure, that do fine work, but I just I, I guess I'm projecting the fact that a lot of our government at the moment is mm-hmm. just in a in a lock state. yeah so, so they're not in lock state, I should say. well i think even let's look at it this way if you look at why it came out when it did and and who controlled that exactly. so you have you have this report and we all know that current administration is not in favor of expressing the concerns about climate change right right so if they're willing to try to release this to or steer it you know away from the public's eye that must mean that there's something in there that goes against their you know views or vision or whatever or their message um but here this no no that's fine this um sentence here tells you a little about who's involved so it says a team of more than 300 federal and non-federal experts including individual excuse me individuals from federal state and local governments tribes and indigenous communities, national laboratories, universities, and the private sector volunteered their time to produce the assessment. So seemingly there's quite a wide variety of people. And the nice thing, if you do go to the website, you can see all of this. They list out not only name for, you know, the names of everybody involved and where they come from, whatever, if you're so inclined to go look, but they also list out every scientific source that they used. On this. Yeah. So I'm going to from... spend the next four years verifying <laughs> all these sources. I do encourage you to check out the website, though. It's actually pretty what, impressive. What was the website name, real quick? Um, let me grab it here. I have it open. Okay. So it's going to be nca2018.globalchange.gov. Yeah, and that should bring um, you up. I was going to say, too, uh, I'm going to take from that sentence that they said volunteer, so I'm going to assume that uh, nobody got paid for this, which if we're taking a positive spin on this, which we should, Mm -hmm. um, that's a good thing because that means people were actually motivated to. Right, people wanted to put this together. Right, so that's comforting. Mm -hmm. So are you on the site now? Uh, No, sorry. I can do that, though. You can, yeah, and actually it'll, it'll... help as we go NC, on NC and see what sorry nca 2018 2018 i got that part <laughs> dot global change yeah and you're gonna be shown this kind of dire picture of a mountain on fire 
Oh, yeah. Beautiful. So, yeah. So, you see Volume 2, Impacts, Risks, and Adaptation in the United States. Um, so, it's nice, they, but they break the whole thing down into a web-friendly version. It's not just a PDF dump. Um, and another thing, too, it's funny how, at least for me, probably for a lot of people, a good litmus or a modern litmus test of like an organization or whatever is their website. If you have a shitty website and it's, and I'm not talking like an old website, but if you have a poorly built, very unintuitive website. Yeah. Hard to use. I'm, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just, I mean, just click around on here and you can see that it's actually nicely done. And one thing, side note, little tangent here. That's really nice about this website is when you click the downloads tab the downloads tab actually changes what the downloads are depending on where you are in the in this document so if i'm looking at the water national topic when i click downloads and click summary in brief or report in brief it's just going to give me that part of the document as a download rather than giving me the whole the whole huh. thing it was kind of yeah. nice you see that i did i just yeah. went to the water one and that mm -hmm. little menu they have Kind in the, the right-hand side. So, yeah. So, that's that's well done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's check out these summaries real quick. Um, and you can click around and see if you can find them. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right along with you. Yep, so summaries. The first one is communities. Yep. So, climate change creates new risks and exacerbates... Ex exacerbates. Exasperates. Yes, thank you. Yeah, no. <laughs> Exacerbates. Exacerbates. <laughs> Ooh, I don't like that word. No, and I was just thinking to myself, I've never seen that word spelled out. I don't think it is strange looking. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So exacerbates existing vulnerabilities in communities across the United States, presenting growing challenges to human health and safety, quality of life, and the rate of economic growth. So these summaries don't really necessarily give you the numbers. Um, but they're kind of just outlining what this this whole community or committee rather um, thinks about these things. Um, so my interpretation, or I should say, uh, how I could see this manifesting, mm. it's as things get more scarce, your friendly neighbor is all of a sudden your competitor. Now all of a sudden, it, water is not as as plentiful as it was 30 mm -hmm. years ago and you've got to outcompete your community to get water or mm -hmm. band together and become like nomadic or something mm. and and uh yeah i mean it's, it's gonna get interesting so it's basically saying that it sounds like the the rate of growth that we're experiencing now is gonna slow because presenting glowing growing challenges um, to human health and safety, quality of life, like, you know, the things that we take for granted today might go away, that type of thing. Um, and then the rate of economic growth. And actually, this report does focus quite a bit on economics and stuff, um, which has not really been done in terms of climate change before. I mean, it has in little bits, but I think this... I think that's also a really smart choice, because there's no better way, at least in no, this I think podcast, that's what needs to opinion. Be. Yeah. There's no better way to get people to fucking listen Money than talks, to tell man. them that they're exactly. Yeah, you can. Yeah, tell somebody that uh, 
you know, it's going to be three degrees hotter on average and they can shrug that off, but then you tell them it's going to cost them X amount more and it's all of a sudden they're listening. And as far as the economy, exactly, as far as the economy slowing down, that's just a function of as, actually, this year was a great example. We had some of the worst storms ever, mm-hmm. or not maybe not ever, but we had some pretty intense storms over here in the U.S. And costs a lot of money. That costs a lot of money and a lot of people's time that they were otherwise going to spend on advancing things right. rather than repairing things. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so the second one is economy, and it says without substantial and sustained global mitigation and regional adaptation efforts. Climate change is expected to cause growing losses to American infrastructure and property and impede the rate of economic growth over this century. So this doesn't give the figure, but I believe um, later in the report, they actually do say that by the end of the century, they expect an economic you know, drop in the U.S. by 10% or something, however you quantify that. But a 10%... Yeah, you know, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah, it's massive. That's far larger than the hit we took, you know, a decade ago with the whole recession yep. and everything. Um, yeah, so... I'm reading the detail of this one a little bit. Okay, yeah. Uh, Anything while you were talking. stick out to you? Well, and I was just, there was a particular sentence about borders, and I was just thinking, one of the difficult problems that we face with all this, and five years ago we were on the one side of the fence... We're now the problem. Uh, it's that when every country, the big ones at least, don't play ball, you can you can do all you want. But if the other large industrial country is just saying, fuck you, then, I mean, ultimately, you should still keep working towards fixing your own problems mm-hmm. and, and working on the environment. But you, you need the big industrial uh, players to play. Right. And... Mm. Five years ago, China was the one that was saying, uh, you know, it's not fair. Their argument, and this is actually not just their argument, a lot of growing countries that are basically going through their industrial revolution, Mm -hmm. they're saying, you got to go through your, China talking to the U.S., you got to go through your industrial revolution and you just got to throw caution to the wind. Mm -hmm. So why don't we get to do that? But... Which, that has yeah, since... I, see where, I see where you're coming from with that, but that's such an unfortunate way to look at it. Right, it is. And fortunately, I think that mindset, because of reports like this, because the counter-argument to that is, yeah, that's true, but here's the thing, life isn't fair, mm-hmm. and if you keep going with that mindset, it doesn't matter what we do or anybody does because it's going to be a shit show. Right. So gonna... I think... I think the larger community and China has at least publicly turned that around and said, you know what? No, we're, we're not going to take that stance. We are going to work towards improving mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And now we're the ones, or at least our administration have, you know, we're the ones to have said, you know, we're out. Right. So now we're the issue really. Yeah, really. I mean, depending on how you look at it, you could say it's an opportunity to do it better the second time around. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, you could be better than us. Right. History could history could look fondly upon you. Right. Take it as a opportunity. Yeah. Um. So the third summary here is. I'm gonna have a lot of thoughts on this topic. <laughs> on this one specifically? No, no. The whole your, oh, your yeah. whole topic here. Is no, this is perfect. 
Um, so interconnected impacts, it says. Climate change affects the natural, built, and social systems we rely, we rely on individually and through their connections to one another. These interconnected systems are increasingly vulnerable to cascading impacts that are often difficult to predict, threatening essential services within and beyond the nation's borders. That one's a little yeah. tough to, to decipher. <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of is actually just noting what I was saying a second ago. Not trying to... These people are far smarter than me. Um, <laughs> oh, they know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I wrote this whole report. They just uh, they just copied down my dictation. Uh, right. No, I was just... This one is speaking to that whole, we've all got to work mm-hmm. together on this. Yeah, so extreme weather and climate related impacts on one system can result in increased risks or failures in other critical systems, including water resources, food production, and distribution. So kind of what you're, you could even say that as, um, uh, let's say, you know, we have more intense storms than, you know, we have to spend more time, energy, money to deal with those. So, you know, it's just one thing cascades to the next. Definitely, yeah. It's uh... or as you know, increased weather events break down transportation systems, and now rather than making them better, you're just rebuilding. <laughs> when that we were looking thing. at those satellite photos of the hurricanes a couple episodes ago, mm-hmm. it really uh, our scale, like the personal, the individual scale. You don't. You look up and you see the clouds, and those clouds are right over you, and you can't, you don't see any further, really, you know, mm-hmm. or you see, you know, you see how far you can see, but it's, in terms of actual scale, it's not very far, but then when you zoom out and you look at the whole Earth and you see how large those hurricanes are, you can literally see how, okay, yeah, the hurricane that's off the Gulf of Mexico, if I could see the pressure current, you know, the currents of the pressure systems moving around, mm-hmm. it's so. The Earth is tiny, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and those hurricanes influence such a huge area. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So to us, it feels like the Earth is giant, but when you look at those photos of from space of, of the hurricanes, the Earth is not big at all. No, not yeah. You can't really escape large no. weather events like that, regardless of where you are, in some yeah. sense. Um. Yeah, because as, you know, as they become more extreme, let's say, you know, it starts affecting the U.S. more, but you don't necessarily feel the um, the hurricane's weather impacts necessarily in somewhere over in, I don't know, Europe somewhere. But um, if all of a sudden the U.S.'s economy takes a 10% hit, you're going to feel that everywhere else, too. Sure. And sure. could obviously go the other way around, but... I mean, yeah, if... Uh, let's see. What do we get? Well, I'll... I'll use the other way around, but you know, the whole soybean thing, you know, China was like buying 90% of our soybeans Mm -hmm. and it's not for that. They're not happening anymore because of the tariffs, which is a different thing, but you know, it'd just be like all of a sudden something that we know. And like if milk, if all our milk came from Mexico or whatever, and then Mexico gets knocked out from the hurricane, then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. no more milk. Right. Yeah. It has a, a rippling effect. Um, so the fourth one here is called Actions to Reduce to reduce Risks. Um, let me go over here. 
Communities, governments, and businesses are working to reduce risks from and costs reduce risks from and costs associated with climate change by taking action to lower greenhouse gas emissions and implement adaptation strategies. While mitigation and adaptation efforts have expanded substantially in the last four years, they do not yet approach the scale considered necessary to avoid substantial damages to the economy, environment, and human health over the coming decades. That's a big one. So basically we're, yes, certain areas have identified and started to implement solutions, but it's not enough at its current scale. It's not, but trying to be hopeful and and staying positive. Not that I talk to everybody, of course, but one thing I feel is that people in and around our age and, and plenty of people older too, there's no, I don't, most people at least, and hopefully I'm not, well, I might be in a vacuum or whatever, but I don't think most people deny climate change at this point. Most no. actual real people. Most, I would agree with you that. Know. Yeah. Um, and to me, I, I am, I look for the, I'm always feeling a little better when I see people like Elon Musk and, you know, there's that big ocean cleanup that's starting uh, soon and all that stuff. I, I think that I think that scale is going to exponentially increase. I think as we get going here, the, the ball is rolling, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm hopeful that it's really going to snowball. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Because um, I mean, some of this is already impacting people's lives. Oh, directly, absolutely. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the more people talk about it and, and acknowledge it and face it head on, the faster that will grow. What's not comforting is the fact that, like, this conversation, people were talking about this stuff in, like, the 60s and the 70s, and they were like, we should start now. Well, I saw a figure earlier that said something like, we understood that we were putting too much into the atmosphere pretty much, I mean, it was still in the 1800s sometime. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Like, it was was known. (laughs) Oh, no. So, oh boy. So a lot's changed since then in terms of people's, you know, just society in general. So will it take us a hundred plus years to adapt? Probably not, but still, um, yeah, it's been known about for a long time. The effects of that necessarily haven't been known, but yeah, it's been a topic of study for a long time. Yeah. Uh, So the fifth one is just titled Water, and it says the quality and quantity of water available for use by people and ecosystems across the country are being affected by climate change, increasing risks and costs to agriculture, energy production, industry, recreation, and the environment. Um, This is a big one. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty general statement, but uh, it doesn't say too much about how or why, but... Um, if you go a little further, I guess, <clears throat> scroll down here. While you're looking through that, uh, going back to my earlier previous topic or point, um, the snowball effect and people it's slapping in the face. Mm-hmm. 
one of our most, if not the most progressive state in the U- United States recently just got completely destroyed, at least a certain part of it, but probably the most significant part because it burned a lot of rich people's homes. Hmm. Uh, the hills of Malibu, uh, no, Malibu. Uh, yeah, Malibu. Um, you know, the hills of LA and California, hmm. uh, they have had no water for a decade. I mean, they're, they're, amazing pictures of reservoirs in california also texas um where docks with boats are just on the ground oh wow like actually because the reservoir is empty yeah yeah Yeah, because the reservoir is empty so there's Mm -hmm. just boats sitting on the ground Mm -hmm. um and then with all these wildfires and and i mean this one was really you know it it this is kind of fucked up in a lot of ways but it burns some really rich people's homes to the ground and mm-hmm. that's going to get money moving mm-hmm. and money talks. I heard that, um, I think Kanye and Kim Kardashian hired a private firefighting team. I don't doubt it for a second. <laughs> so that just, when I heard that, I was like, okay, not that surprised, but that just really goes to show that the rich people will be the ones to survive all this and survive yeah definitely definitely and now you just made me want to retract my point because maybe if you can pay your way out of the problem you're not going to be motivated to do anything about it hmm that's an interesting point too we'll ignore that though (laughs) um there was something in here okay so one example of the water thing uh, and how that could affect um, things here. So it says that um, uh, changes in the relative amounts of relative amounts and timing of snow and rainfall are leading to mismatches between water availability and needs in some regions, posing sure. threats to, for example, the future reliability of hydropower production in the southwest and the northwest. So let's say you you know these power plants need a steady supply of water but now you've thrown off you know snowfall versus rainfall and now maybe that supply of water is not steady and um you can't really rely on it like you were before i didn't even think of this one in that same line of thought most u.s power plants rely on a steady supply of water for cooling and operations are expected to be affected by changes in water availability Mm. and the temperature of the water oh Oh, Dude. yeah. I didn't think oh about that. God. So. Hmm. As so, the water heats okay. up, you can't rely on it as much for cooling, or you have to scale down the capacity of the the uh, the power plant. Okay, so here's something that... <laughs> um, nuclear power plants are... There's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And whatever you feel about nuclear power, they need this water. And... If you don't have this water, you can't just decommission a nuclear power plant. It doesn't work like that. Once mm-hmm. you start the nuclear process, you got to starve it of fuel to shut it down. But right. you're still going to have to... You still have to let it run. You still got to let it run, which, yeah. Oh, man. That's scary. Cool. Yeah, so, and then going back to the other one about interconnected impacts you know let's say that 
the water thing happens and then it affects the power plants. Now you're either spending time retooling power plants or breaking them down and moving them somewhere else or building new ones that you might not necessarily had to have built before. All that. Or you or you get a Fukushima type thing where your a power plant is is not properly maintained or whatever mm-hmm. and it wasn't our power plant but obviously the Fukushima thing you know the radiation levels of the world increased after that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. <laughs> positivity positivity okay six health how we're we doing on time okay uh i think we're where are we at yeah we're okay a little long but okay we'll try to be quick with the rest here so health it says impacts from climate change on extreme weather and climate related events air quality and the transmission of disease through insects and pests food and water increasingly threaten the health and well-being of american people Particularly populations that are already vulnerable. Um, things that are bad are going to get worse, and things that are good are going to get worse. That's interesting about the transmission of disease through insects and pests being changed. Yeah, what are they? What are they insinuating there? As far as oh, they elaborate. Good. Uh, climate change is also projected to alter geographic range and distribution of disease carrying mm-hmm. ins- insects. So the Lyme, the Lyme disease carrying tick can right. now live in more places. Interesting. Or at least different places, we could or say. Diff- yeah, yeah. So that, I mean... Yeah, some of these things sound like, you know, things that people could adapt to, other things are more detrimental. Yeah. Not that adaptation is a great way to look at it, because it would be nice to just not have to do that, but <laughs> we're beyond that point. Yes, we are. Because... Um, a side note to it all is that even let's say you put a hard stop on everything greenhouse gas emissions right now it's not like it stops you know the warming right away it's a very much delayed reaction and i forget what right. the the years are on that it's in the report you can go find it <laughs> <laughs> um seven indigenous peoples Climate change increasingly threatens indigenous communities, livelihoods, economies, health, and cultural identities by disrupting interconnected social, physical, and ecological systems. Yeah. Hmm. So this one made me think about, again, the, the whole buying your way out of things. Mm-hmm. Which you can't do if you're... Well. Hmm. Well, and, and I mean, one... An easy, low-hanging fruit on this one for indigenous communities, coastal communities that, mm-hmm. or island communities, are that you know rising sea levels are just going to wipe away if people don't evacuate. So, yeah, I was thinking about that water one. Can you imagine if you lived on an island, let's one of the islands of Hawaii, let's say, mm-hmm. and somehow I think this would be pretty extreme, but like the rains just stop, you're screwed. Yeah, I mean, you're on a you're on a relatively small island, and you all around you is salt water, which obviously, if you drink, you die. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, is there no natural source of fresh water there? Probably not. I doubt. <laughs> well, I I honestly don't know. But yeah. Let's probably for not. the sake of the argument. Yeah, if there is not, then yeah. So, which yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of islands where that's the case, right? Yeah. Um, so ecosystems and ecosystem services 
Ecosystems and the benefits they provide to society are being altered by climate change, and these impacts are projected to continue. Without substantial and sustained reductions in global greenhouse gas emissions, transformative impacts on the ecosystems will occur. Some coral reef and sea ice ecosystems are already experiencing such transformational changes. Yep. Yeah, so, Cor- you know. The coral reef one has been in the news yeah, a bunch. Yeah, the bleaching of the... Yeah, I mean, so... Oh, there, there's a whole section on oceans and coasts, but yeah, rising, you know, temperatures of the oceans are um, causing massive problems. Yep. Uh, is it been the the Great Barrier Reef that's been in the news lately? I know that yeah, was sometimes. Yeah, the one in Australia. Like, yeah, it's so tr- it's so tragic because like you mm-hmm. got this thing that is just the crown jewel of mm-hmm. the just planet, like a natural a, wonder. Yeah, that, there's lots of crown jewels of the planet, but and it just and it, what was so crazy about that that is it is it uh, it was not a slow death. It died like it went from being at least from a layman's perspective, it went from being okay mm-hmm. to dead in like six months or a year or something. Yeah, like it was that. pretty fast. At least it from, was really fast. The last from I heard, it was. I don't know. Do you do you have an updated stat on like how much of the percentage of it is is I considered don't. dead at this point? I don't. I do know that uh, by accident. I don't have any of the details, but I do know that by accident. Uh, some guy, some scientist has come out of retirement because he accidentally just messing around on his own or something like that. He figured out how to speed up the growth time of coral by up to 90%. What? Yeah. So in a very small section of the the problem, somebody mm-hmm. found a solution to the coral problem, it seems. but And you can just grow not, more? That, that's, I, I didn't read the entire article but yeah essentially he somehow figured out that you can speed up most of these corals you know because traditionally they take like decades to grow Mm -hmm. which is why when they die off in a year it's really shocking yeah Hmm. um but you know that's that's a band-aid that's not right uh so number nine agriculture and food rising temperatures extreme heat drought wildfire and Rain, oh, on rangelands, excuse me, and heavy downpours are expected to increasingly disrupt agricultural productivity in the United States. Expected increases in challenges to livestock health, declines in crop yields and quality, and changes in extreme events in the United States and abroad threaten rural livelihoods, sustainable food security, and price stability. Romaine lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, that's not. I don't think that was related. Probably not. I did. Um, funny enough, I might have actually had uh, gotten. I might have gotten sick by that. Really? I was pretty. I was pretty sick uh, for about four days, and it might have been E. coli. Yeah. Huh? Did you? Yeah. Do you? Can I, you identify when you had romaine lettuce? I can, and it matches up. And it was before. It, just to exonerate myself, it was before. <laughs> I ate it like literally like twelve hours before they were like, "Yeah, don't eat that." <laughs> gross, dude. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> I'll spare you the details, but sh- you got it. It was gross. Is it like food poisoning or something? Oh, it was. Yeah, it was terrible. It, yeah, yeah, that sounds really awful. Bad food poisoning. Fuck. <laughs> um. So this one, it just sounds like you know, 
it just sounds like that's not the right way to start that. Um, at least one takeaway is just less food available. Yep. So, I wonder if that means that, I wonder if they projected out actual population. Like, will population slow? I would imagine it would have to. Uh, yeah. I hope so, at least. That's actually, I think I've mentioned this at least during an episode way back, but that's one of the best things you can do as a singular individual to combat climate change is just don't make more people. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you can, get a, you can get a hybrid, you can do all this, but you can literally just not make another person who will then contribute more. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, okay. Infrastructure. Our nation's aging and deteriorating infrastructure is further stressed by increases in heavy participate <laughs> Jesus. precipitation events, coastal flooding, heat, wildfires, and other extreme events, as well as changes to average precipitation and temperature. Without adaptation, climate change will continue to degrade infrastructure performance over the rest of the century, with the potential for cascading impacts that threaten our economy, national security, essential services, and health and well-being. Um, one point to make, and I don't know if I made it perfectly clear before, these are like the highest level possible takeaways that you can get in this report that I'm reading. Yeah, you're you distilling. Can, Sorry, I'm just, yeah, this is distilled as much as possible. Like the numbers that support all these claims are, are there if you go in. Um, that would have just been too much for what we're trying to do here. But yeah, these are the most distilled versions of the takeaways. 1,600 pages distilled into 12 <laughs> points. Exactly. 12 yeah, points with a few sentences at most. <laughs> um, yeah, infrastructure. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's in a bad state in a lot of places right now and mm -hmm. without change. Yeah, so I mean... You can take the the hurricanes, for example, or you know wildfires or whatever. All those natural disasters, if they're going to get intense or more intense, then they're going to affect you know roadways or burn down more buildings or whatever. Um, side side note on the hurricane thing: I saw a picture of um, a couple of houses that were right along the ocean, and one of them was a new-ish house that had been built with hurricanes in mind. Mm -hmm. And it was just incredible. Engineering is amazing. Hmm. Everything was decimated, except for this house. <laughs> oh shit. no! So no, the house did amazing. House like it's did... perfectly fine. Really? And uh, perfectly fine. You know, it was relatively speaking. It was I mean, standing. it was it was completely whole. Like nothing mm -hmm. physically. It was it was fine. I'm sure it had dings and stuff on the outside. You know, and no, it was lucky enough that no two by four went through it. Mm -hmm. But all around it, complete devastation. But the house that was constructed to modern code uh, was, relatively speaking, just fine, which I thought was cool. Um, I wonder what you have to do to hurricane-proof a house. Smell a topic. <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> um, anyway, so 11, we're almost done here. Oceans and coasts this should be interesting. Coastal communities and ecosystems that support them are increasingly threatened by the impacts of climate change. 
uh, without significant reductions in global greenhouse gas emissions and regional adaptation measures, many coastal regions will be transformed by the uh, latter part of this century, with impacts affecting the other regions and, sec and sectors. Even in a future with lower greenhouse gas emissions, many communities are expected to suffer financial impacts as chronic high tide flooding leads to higher costs and lower property values. Dang. Okay, so I just got to hold out a couple of years and I can get my oceanfront property. That's, that's right. What, that's Let what the I'm ocean come to you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, it's interesting because you, you think about they mentioned lower property values, but there's an obvious, you know, other side to that where certain other areas are going to shoot up in, in value. Right. Absolutely. Like Miami's just gone, mm -hmm. you know, in 30 years, Miami's done. Right. Um, like those people need to go somewhere. They got to go somewhere. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Just maybe a mile inland. And what is yeah. now the coast? <laughs> but, but think about it from, if you start, you're literally reducing the amount of land area so people are getting compressed into a smaller space not that we True. use all our land area to house people now but still it's yeah. going to cause maybe areas that aren't developed now to have to be developed so we'll cut down more trees which further exasperates the problem i just use that word that i can't say exacerbates yeah, I'm just going to leave it alone. <laughs> I, already, I already acknowledged it. Um, more than half of the damages to coastal property are estimated to be avoidable through well-timed adaptation measures. Hmm. Substantial and sustained reductions in global greenhouse gases would also significantly reduce projected risks to fisheries. Hmm. So, little positive note. Okay. Appreciate the, uh, the yin and yang aspect there gotta have some good with the bad dude <laughs> um so one the last thing, one oh go ahead i was just gonna say I'm, I'm thinking about the people that write this report and if any of them are Must have been anxious really... like i am i mean well dude sleep, i mean poor people how do they sleep at night i think the type of person the 300 people are pretty passionate about this they must be yeah. so on, they're definitely the people who are going to be like must have been hard to write this not yeah, only right. from a you know challenging you know from a uh just a difficulty you know actually sitting down and doing it yeah yeah but the 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 emotional tax involved right exactly that's what in I'm writing this to. is is mm -hmm. huge okay so the last one is tourism and recreation outdoor recreation tourist economies and quality of life are reliant on benefits provided by our natural environment that we or that will be degraded by the impacts of climate change in many ways. Um, so I, I think an obvious one there is going to be, you know, nat or, uh, national parks or something like that that are now, um, you know, degraded in some sense from this. The Yellowstone National Park was, at least a good portion of it, was closed this year because it was on fire. Yep. There you go. Perfect. Um or let's just, you know, you can tie it back to the oceans and coasts. Uh, a lot of those, a lot of, you know, ocean front properties and towns are also get a lot of tourism traffic. So that's going to be reduced. 
Um, yeah, I say we, we leave it there. We could dive into a, another one of these more specifically if you wanted to. If you go up to the top, you can click chapters. I think it's... Uh, I mean, the message here is definitely check this report out. Um, I think you should. It's yeah. nice because you can go in and, and really just click and see the things that you're most interested in and um, and then just read the, the overall stuff too. I started to read the Northeast section. If uh, if you're thinking, uh, we have an episode, I forget what number it is, where I did zero waste mm-hmm. uh, and I focused on a town in Japan that is working towards not wasting any of, of their uh, tr- waste. I was going to say waste. Uh, their trash. <laughs> um, uh, so what I... My point there was ideas on what you can do about mm-hmm. this. Uh, that would at least be if we're plugging our own podcast. Uh, As you, you should can go over there uh, mm-hmm. and check that out. Some pretty cool ideas over there. Um, stop using grocery bags. That would, that would be <sighs> the, that would one. be the one. That would be the one that I. Yeah, but I'm not going to preach. They actually do have um, an entire chapter. Or two chapters in here, I think. Um, yeah, two chapters about reducing risks and and things like that. So that could be okay. useful as well. All, All right. right. So um, how are you gonna how are you gonna yeah, bring us up? And I got an easy dogs? one. Okay. So one of the methods that uh, they might have used to come up with this report, or or more specifically, some of the real raw data within the report. Uh, is with something called machine learning, Ooh. which the larger topic, uh, the buzzword we'll use is big data. Ah, big data. And if you work in the corporate world, uh, you probably hate that term because people who don't know what they're talking about love to throw that around and just be like, yeah, big data, it's a thing, and we do it and buy our software. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, the concept, big data is the buzzword, but really what we're talking about here is using tons of data, like huge volumes of data uh, to spot trends and correlations that we otherwise would not have uh, been aware of. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the climate report, if you've got a huge database of some uh, making this one up. I got plenty of my own examples, but on the spot here, if you've got a whole bunch of data on a river and the river's warming, but you're not immediately, it's not immediately obvious as to why, if you had enough data and also the right data, you might be able to spot an otherwise unknown trend uh, that might explain it. And mm. you would do that using machine learning, which I'll cover that in a second. Okay. So what is big data? Uh, as I said, it's, it's a term to use to describe large sets of data considered mm-hmm. too complex for traditional sorting methods. Oh, so, okay. Because uh, so, when I think of big data, from my perspective, it's almost, and I think actually a lot of people would maybe think of it this way, is a lot of user-generated data. Yes, um, that would Just be by you know, the nature of, of how things are these days. So um, like from my perspective, in the car industry, you know, you have... A billion people out there driving around in you know Chevys and stuff, and you can collect data on how they're using their vehicles, and exactly. that data 
you know, on the surface is unmanageable and too much to make anything, but once you start using, you know, some sort of uh, analysis methods on all that data, you can start to build trends and, and things like that. Exactly. And that's exactly what we're going we're gonna to go through. And uh, if you happen to think of any other uses or examples of, of this, feel free to chime in. I've got some good ones, but I, I was really going to rely on you for a couple and that got what I wanted right away. Um, so here, uh, as far as the data, think about it this way. We're talking about data sets that would not fit in an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, more practically speaking, big data usually refers to the act of interpreting the data to do things like it's how Amazon knows what you want to buy before you buy it. Mm-hmm. It's how Facebook knows you know someone before you've even met them. It's how the Large Hadron Collider is searching for dark matter. Big data is how grocery stores determine what coupons to send you. It's how Apple knows what word to suggest while you're texting. Mm -hmm. It's how Google Maps is so damn good. Uh, And it's how Gmail mines all your communications. Oh, got (laughs) to end on a hard one, huh? So in the business world, big data is how companies spot past trends and then try to predict future ones such that they Mm -hmm. can capitalize on the trend and and probably make money or try to make money. Mm -hmm. So so before we get into sort of the real world examples of all this, uh, that term machine learning is probably, it's a, we're going to use it in a general sense, I suppose, but well, ultimately, what you do with these big data sets is you you train, you take a small portion of it, and you train a computer program, or you show a computer program, however you want to think about it. Here's a, uh, let me see here, I'm trying to think of a, an example. Here's an event. Whenever I hit the gas, the car goes, and that mm-hmm. event happens once and you show it the machine here's the here's the data here's the uh the inputs going in and the the result coming out Mm -hmm. you show the machine the computer one example of that and it Mm -hmm. documents that you show it a second a second example and it's the same i push on the cast gas and the car goes forward Mm -hmm. Uh, now you scale that up to giant levels and every single time the machine is expecting, okay, I've, I've learned from a million instances of the test that generally speaking, the pattern is this. You push on the gas and the car goes forward. Mm-hmm. Now within that giant data set, if there is a trend where a certain part of the population of the data pushes on the gas, this is a terrible analogy, but I've got way better ones. Um, <laughs> trying to I appreciate that. I appreciate the car analogy. It helps. <laughs> um, so if for whatever reason people are pushing on the gas and mm-hmm. the car is going backwards, the machine is going to say, oh, based on what you showed me first and then also what I've learned after going through all previous tests, I have spotted something different than the expected outcome. Okay. So and identifies that as a problem or as an opportunity or more like it alerts the human user to it and then it's up to the human to interpret mm. is this good or bad. 
So to put it into, let's see if this translates well, a program, I'm sorry, machine learning is, is a field of study that gives computers the ability to learn without explicitly being programmed. Uh, mm -hmm. So a computer program is said to learn from experience E with respect to some task T and some okay. performance measurement P. Yeah. So okay. if it's a performance on T as measured by P, mm. it improves with experience E. Now, you don't have to keep that in your head. Basically, so if you want to your program to predict traffic patterns, mm -hmm. I should have just gone with this from the beginning. <laughs> um, <laughs> traffic patterns at a busy intersection the T, task T, the variable T, mm. uh, you can run that through a machine learning algorithm with data from past traffic patterns, uh, the variable E, and if it has successfully learned, it'll do better at predicting future traffic patterns, uh, you know, that are, that are to come. Mm. Mm. Okay. So that's what machine learning is, and it's uh, one of the primary, it covers a lot of stuff, but it's one of the primary ways you can use big data. So you basically feed your data into this, into a program that has been trained or has learned what the normal path of events is. So if you find non-normal correlations, or just, I shouldn't even say non-normal, if you just, the computer is able to spot things that you didn't tell it about, basically. That's mm -hmm. probably a good way to think about it. You okay. give it this large set of data and, uh, you know, you've told it what you know and then it comes back and says, okay, you showed me all these things and that was what you expected. And then I found based on those parameters, this set of the data is outside of your parameters that you gave me. And I'm showing, you know, and, and then it's up to the human again to interpret, you know, what it mm -hmm. actually means right. for the real world. So, so this will make hopefully more sense as we go. That was a little bit kind of fumbled that uh, intro okay. there, but that's <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, before we get into the examples real quick, um, just to put into perspective the scale of what we're talking about in terms of data, mm -hmm. um, you have a kilobyte is a representation of data. Um, it's 1,024 bytes. Mm -hmm. A megabyte is 1,024 kilobytes. A gigabyte is 1,024 megabytes. So a two-hour... Uh, HD movie using Blu-ray compression is 48 gigabytes. Wow. Uh, a petabyte. So I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. So you have gigabytes, right? One level yeah. above gigabyte is terabyte. So 1,024 gigabytes makes up a terabyte. Above that is petabyte. So 1,024 terabytes make up one petabyte. And then above petabyte, which is what the last level will do, is called an exabyte. Oh, wow. So I never knew that. Oops. Um, so, yeah, a two-hour Blu-ray movie would is 48 gigabytes. 853. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting myself. Let me back up. I'm using the wrong scale here. Using professional compressions is a two-hour movie is 1.2 terabytes. This will be easier. Wow. So ignore the professional compression part, but let's say a two-hour movie is 1.2 terabytes. Mm -hmm. 853 of those movies would fit onto a petabyte. 873,000 would fit onto an exabyte. So, wow. And 
the reason I was using the Blu-ray thing is because at a professional compression level, mm-hmm. 1.2 terabytes is quite large for a movie. Definitely. 48 gigabytes is a very small percentage. Well, it's a fairly small percentage of a terabyte. So even even more than 873,000 movies would fit onto an exabyte if you were using uh, Blu-ray compression. But that's sure. beside the point. Okay. So we're talking about huge scales of data here. More mm. movies than you could watch in a lifetime. <laughs> Uh, and to put it a little bit more in perspective, Walmart handles more than a million customer transactions every hour, and which is imported to a de- database estimated to contain more than 2.5 petabytes of data. That's 2,560 terabytes. That's wow. equivalent to 167 times the information contained in all the books in the Library of Congress. Dude. So we're talking massive stuff here. Um, does Walmart, real quick, have its own servers and stuff? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they might. Maybe they use I didn't Amazon. know if they were using, like, AWS or something. Oh, they might. Yeah, they might. Um, yeah. And, dude, anyway. it's actually kind of scary how many. They're AW, uh, AWS stands for Amazon Web Services, and Amazon yeah. provides um, hosting services, internet ser- uh, providing services for uh a scary number of, of companies and there was a big outage I want to say like four years ago and it kind of slapped people in the face as to how much is actually just hooked up into like Amazon is is the internet in a, in a lot of ways mm-hmm. it's kind of scary <laughs> okay so um, I got to start with the science one the large hadron collider can I uh, ask a question real oh, quick oh yeah of course of course um, and if I'm jumping ahead let me know but do you know the difference between machine learning and deep learning? Uh, have you heard that term? I have, and mm-hmm. their deep learning is a version of machine learning. Right, they're definitely similar. Yeah, I didn't know if you were if you you know were able to give a simple explanation of. I think deep learning is more complex, right, than machine learning. Like it takes things kind of a step further. Yeah, my experience with deep learning is is the visual side of things and what it does with it. Oh. Um, so I, I'm probably not the best to speak to that. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, let me see. I th- I think I, I think basically what it is is um, you there's less human input involved. Like before, you were saying how you give it the input and you kind of let it know what you're expecting as an output, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you have to do the output part. Like, basically with deep uh, learning, the machine starts making its own decisions. Um, so let's say, um, I think one example I remember, you you tell it to identify a certain word, um, but then let's say over enough data sets, um, that word starts, the machine starts to associate that word with other words, and other phrases and then let's say you know the phrase was to turn something on whereas with a simpler machine learning capability it would have to have that certain turn x on or whatever Um, whereas in a deep learning situation the machine over time might be able to identify you know not only turn the thing on but also like activate this or 
Um, okay. yeah. Things like that. So it's able to, I think, make deeper extrapolations. I've always uh, explained... I, think I that could totally be wrong. <laughs> no, I think, I think you've got it. Um, I've always explained that computers only do exactly what you tell them to do currently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you tell it to break, it's going to break. It sounds like deep learning is a way to essentially take out human error. It might be. Um, it or make computers sounds... more adaptable to human, you know, normal, because humans are not good at communicating with computers. You know, we don't like having to spell out every single thing. We assume a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like deep learning is a way to get computers more human-like. Yeah, the roadmap to AI. Yeah. <laughs> or at least advanced so I, AI. I, I Googled it real quickly. Uh, deep learning is a part of a broader family of machine learning methods. Mm-hmm. based on learning data learning data representations as opposed to task specific algorithms. Hmm. Learning can be supervised, semi-supervised or unsupervised. So to your point, you can you can tell these things very little and just see what it comes up with. Right, right. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good. desirable outcome or whatever, but <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um the Large Hadron Collider, which quickly is this big uh, particle accelerator ring over in France, and what they are trying to do over there is find something called, well, find a bunch of stuff, but one of the, the, the flashy things, they're looking for something called dark matter, which that's a whole other day. We're going to skip right over that, because uh, <laughs> if I don't, it will be here till tomorrow. Um, so it's this, big, it's this big ring. It's like miles in diameter. It's huge. And it's underground mm-hmm. and they take particles and they, they, they use this ring and they, they start a collection of particles on one side and another set of it on the other side. And they accelerate them along one half of the ring and they slam them or well, they can do that or they can do another way too. Anyway, basically they're slamming particles together so that they hit each other and explode and hopefully throw dark matter out into mm-hmm. the universe. And then we can see it. It's such a sophisticated way of doing something so seemingly Childish. rudimentary. Childish. <laughs> it's so okay, great. I want to smash these things together, but I need a eight-mile diameter ring to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How can I break these two things in the most complicated way possible? <laughs> uh, so there are, when they're operating this thing, there are 600 million collisions of individual particles called a physicist physics event there are 600 million per second so 600 million collisions i'll refer to that as a physics event later uh, per second and after filtering and refraining from recording and this is i'm sorry this is after filtering and refraining from recording uh certain noise so they filter out uh 99% of the data that's being mm. collected and they're still getting 600 million collisions per second wow. There are, within the 600 million, it's estimated there are about 100 collisions of interest per second. So 600 million wow. collisions per second, of which only 100 are probably going to be... Okay, so useful. that's so you're using machine learning to identify those 100. Right. So what happens, what they're doing, with, and where big data comes into this, as you're, uh, is we know, or at least we're pretty sure, we know what happens when you slam two particles together... And for the most part, we know what happens. So we tell 
these guys are telling the computer program, hey, when I slam two protons together, generally speaking, 10% of the energy looks like this, 10% of the energy looks like that. So those are the parameters. Now here's this, here's a huge amount of data. And I need you, the computer program, to sift through all that data and find any situation where the outcome of the physics event, the collision, is different than what I told you. Hmm. And then, and then the learning part of it is over time, the the machine, the the computer programs, they learn the deep kind of the, maybe the deep learning side of things mm-hmm. is they learn certain tolerances and they learn over time. So the first time the machine learning thing would say, "Hey, I found this collision that looks odd. Can you check it out?" The human checks it out and says, "Well, yeah, you're right. It was odd, but really, what the problem was is my parameters that I gave you were bad." Mm-hmm. So. They go in and they tweak, or more sophisticatedly, the the uh, machine is able to tweak itself and say, okay, yes, that collision was slightly odd, but ultimately it was not it was not outside the bounds of what is normal. So I'm going to update what is normal. Hmm, okay. Um, Hopefully, but still with a, with a system like this, you have to. You have to have some notion going into it of what you're looking for. Yeah. But with this, well, with what they're trying to do, they're looking for things they might not know about yet, right? Right, so which is which is the big data side of things. Right. Hopefully you're not missing anything. Well, the if you've programmed it correctly, hopefully mm-hmm. the machine learning That's side of things that. would would say, hey, you know, this, this physics event is totally out of the norm like mm-hmm. i don't even know what's going on but you the human need to review it right you need it at least it's gonna flag it <laughs> right it's gonna flag it um so that's how they're they're doing it over there um how about the hardware that they must have to collect oh, data that quickly obviously that quickly? sifting through it in the after you know is its own thing i'm sure they don't want that to be slow either but you said six million six hundred six hundred million collisions <laughs> per second yeah, so it's got to be able to record that. Um, <laughs> what the fuck? The LHC, Large Hadron Collider Experiments, per, uh, produce, this is a 12, 2012 figure, 25 petabytes of data per year. Whoa. So that is a gigabyte, a terabyte, a petabyte. Mm-hmm. So that's gigantic. And this is before replication, so they actually, you know, they they duplicate the data so they don't lose it. So, well, and it says it gives a per year figure, but how many tests are they running per year? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Either way, that's a lot of data. And this is after again. I was talking about that filtering thing. Mm. The twenty-five petabytes per year is after only working with 0.001% of all the data that could be captured. If you were to capture all that data, mm-hmm. 500 exabytes per day. So is the... That's ridiculous, by the way. Is the... <laughs> so ridiculous. Is the machine learning program... Yeah, you can't even really think about it. It's like trying to comprehend the size of the universe. The sun, yeah. Um... Is the machine learning program working in real time with the data, or no, no. you're you're just collecting it and then running it through your system? Right. right. Okay. 
Uh, so that's uh, the large. Well, because I was just thinking, if it, you could run it in real time, you would you would maybe stop some of that data from even needing to be collected in the first place. Oh yeah. Here's the thing, though. As far as I know, I don't think the smoking gun has been found yet. I know they've found some really interesting stuff, and a lot of the things are suggesting that dark matter really does exist. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of funny to think that maybe we, because what happens is what the theory is is when these particles collide and they explode mm-hmm. the dark matter is really hard to detect and it's thrown it's thrown away from the explosion and basically if we don't see it right when it's been created mm-hmm. as far as we're concerned it basically dissipates into the ether almost instantly so it's really it's a it's a really small needle in an impossibly large haystack that's crazy Okay, so genetic data and healthcare. This is one of the ways that big data is being used. Well, I guess the science one's really cool, but this one's really benefiting um, people, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you imagine a hospital has this huge database, if they're recording, I mean, think about all the stuff your doctor just keeps on you. If Mm -hmm. hospitals and medical institutions are motivated, they can collect even more data and, and be really diligent in their data collection you'd be able to spot trends in the data that you, on an individual by individual basis, the nurse or the doctor may never even notice. Oh, for sure. But let's say you have uh, a mix of people that have a really interesting set of symptoms and some, and all of a sudden you, they're being fixed or cured or whatever, you might be able to go to the data and say, oh, all these people had all these diff- these similar symptoms and mm-hmm. they happened to both, they happened to all be taking these two types of medication. I wonder if those two types of medication in conjunction seem to have a previously unknown benefit. Right. Hmm. And then on the flip side. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You might go into the doctor and say, I have all these problems and they, you know, they can't figure it out. They can take your, your individual pattern the, and say, okay, we don't know what's going on. So they take your individual data, your individual pattern, and compare it to mm-hmm. the, the huge data set and then right. say, oh, hey, it turns out that there's actually a trend that we didn't know about before where you know, now all of a sudden we think we have an idea of what's wrong with you. Hmm. You know what's interesting to think is, let's say that that in, theoretically just starts right now. Just we start doing that, everybody. Everybody before that, all the data before that, that's been written on hard copy or whatever, isn't going to be captured in that way. So you're almost like starting um, this whole new understanding of the human condition almost right then and there. Totally. This is what we know now. (laughs) And couldn't have asked for a better segue. So 23andMe and the other DNA companies. Mm Mm-hmm. Nobody has ever collected DNA on that scale before. That's crazy. And people, I mean, it's, I don't think they were doing it at first, but, uh, you know, 23andMe now sells your, your genetic data to scientific research uh, institutions hmm. because there's never been a more complete database of genetic data ever. Uh, is, I mean, that sounds like a good thing, right? It is. And you agree to it when you sign up. Right for twenty three of me, but it could be used. You know, it could be used nefariously if somebody wanted to. Hmm. 
Um, so an example of that is there's a a, ma a man named Ahmad Har Hariri. I'm trying to be generous here. Um, he's a professor of psychology at Duke University. Hopefully he doesn't hear this. And uh, who's been using 23andMe in his research since 2009. Hmm. And, uh, wow, it's been around that long, huh? Yeah. So. And well, a study what's his research? That, what's he trying to do with it? A study, so 15 genomes, uh, sorry, using the 23andMe database, a previously unknown link was found between a certain set of genomes and depression. Yeah, so when I think about selling my genetic data, like, and we're talking about data on such a scale like we are here, nobody's going to go in and go find Alex Nizek and he's this and that and the other thing. It's all going towards... Right. an average <laughs> right you and your name isn't if it's being done correctly your name isn't in the data right your height your weight your race all those things are but yeah your name isn't nor is your social security number hopefully yeah that thing doesn't even matter anymore no <laughs> <laughs> okay here's um, a number on a card that's got your whole identity on it don't lose it <laughs> that would be bad you know what's funny about that quick little info? Uh, the social security system, as I mean, we take it for granted at this point, but as the name implies, it was actually really only for the social security system here in America. It was literally your number that you would, when it came time to collect social security, that was your identification number to get social security, and that was it. Hmm. It just so happened that as we progressed, we realized that the use and need for the ability to uniquely identify a person based off of a number and mm. people looked around and they were like well we've already got these social security numbers so here we go just use that <laughs> just use that that's how that is it was never supposed to be in fact we've run out of them there are there are no more unused we're recycling dead social security <laughs> numbers uh, okay anyway so um, this one I had to bring up. It, it doesn't really fit. It doesn't, it doesn't. So one of the sources of big data, and this is where it gets a little nefarious because people are, I'm sure, you know, tired of ads and it can get really big brothery, the whole data, the, the data collection side of, of things. So I read an article. It's an amazing read. I highly recommend it. Gizmodo.com. The article's name is The House That Spied On Me. Hmm. Okay. So that's gizmodo.com, The House That Spied On Me. It's a long read, but man, I really recommend it. So they set up an experiment where this woman, um, the reporter, uh, bought as much smart stuff as she could. And then mm -hmm. another guy within the uh, company built her a router that was able to intercept and, and view and collect all the information that was being sent out of the home so basically they put this router in into the network and so that any data that's exiting the home uh they can see okay so we're talking things like the coffee makers hooked up to the internet the toasters hooked up to the internet the lights are hooked up to the internet the tv the shower the security cameras the baby monitor is hooked up to the internet everything that they could and it was incredible this article some of the things 
I mean, the toaster, the amount of times the toaster reaches out to the home server to say, I'm not toasting bread right now, <laughs> is hilarious and incredible. Hey, I'm over here. And I'm not I'm, toasting I'm bread. I'm capable of toasting, but I'm not. <laughs> no, actually, that's Just really you stupid. To know that. That's part of it. I am capable of toasting, meaning I'm not broken. But but I'm not. Is that is that the the toaster manufacturer's goal of putting that function in there? Is, I don't know. It's just I, to I, ping the system to verify that the toaster's you know on standby. Like what what is that? I I don't know. That's the thing is like some of the data. Like why does the light bulb company need to know? Well, actually, I was about. To, I'm gonna eat those words. The light bulb was sending back. I was on for five hours. Yeah, so that I mean, it it makes perfect sense, right? Now you know how much people are using your product. To put and it then you can engineer your product such that they last just slightly less than people <laughs> want to. Or you figure, or you know, you could also not only how long it's been on, but when it was on, you know when people are using your product, so you can engineer it to fail at the worst possible time. <laughs> um, no, but you could know when people use it so that you, you, I don't know, you know how people are using things, not only how much. Right. So one of the, another egregious example of data collection, uh, shockingly, he said sarcastically, the amount of times the Amazon Echo or the Dot was calling back to the servers was higher than almost everything. Yeah, yeah. The Alexa system is, I mean, I hate to sound uh, something negative, whatever. It's listening to you all the time. Right, right. All the time. And a lot of the time, I mean, just like the, to- just like the toaster, if it's not actually capturing what you're saying... You know, it's reaching back and saying, hey, I'm online, and are there any mm-hmm. updates? But the mm-hmm. thing is, that would be okay, saying, hey, I'm still functioning, and I'm looking for updates. That would make perfect sense if it was even doing that, maybe daily. But the mm-hmm. thing is, it's doing it like every two to four minutes. Yeah, so, that's... Uh, hmm. Yeah, because the toaster thing, you know, maybe that's a way for big toaster company to know how many of their products are deployed and active but you're right doing that every minute (laughs) and the toaster was thousands of times a day (laughs) seriously wait a minute actually hang on can we back Uh, maybe not thousands of times let's say a thousand back back up why do i want my toaster connected to the internet that is the ultimate conclusion (laughs) of the article (laughs) is you don't what was the selling point of that the end of the article she's like and i threw out as all of the smart stuff at the end of this i couldn't stand it that's crazy couldn't stand so so do you know anything about this so i've heard that um so let's let's set up the scenario here i just come to this house and they have an alexa right i've never been on an alexa or whatever but let's say they've had one set up for a while and uh, Alexa knows about them. I come into the home and I connect to the Wi-Fi network that Alexa is connected to. Now, she's got it's, it all. it's linked together, correct? Yep. 
and I can now, let's say, I would start seeing ads for things that maybe the group of people in the room are talking about, whether I search for something on my own or not. Um, those ads could start showing up on my device just because now I'm associated with that system. Right. Sure. Hmm. And so to, to bring big data back into it, ultimately what all this data or some of it, uh, you know, what Amazon is doing with it in the case of the ads or the actually let's use the uh, the whole thing. People also purchased, mm-hmm. you know. Amazon, especially with the advent of the Echo and the Dot, they know not only what you're buying, but they know who you are. Like Amazon knows that I'm, you know, a white male in his 20s mm-hmm. and that I like certain things. They know they they have a whole profile on me. Sure. So they can take that profile of me and compare it against other people that are of similar interests or maybe similar uh, socioeconomic standards, whatever it is, and predict what I might want to buy and right. put it in front of me. And so it can that, be multiple multiple layers deep, right? They can use that. They can also, uh, they're going to relate it to other things that you've bought, right? So right. if you're buying computer parts, they're obviously going to recommend more computer parts. Right. Um, and that stuff doesn't really require big data. That that particular example you just brought up. Yeah, that, no, not, a, not on its own. Not as an isolated example, but you could tie that into a further larger prediction, I would imagine. Right. Like, um, rather than suggesting to you, you know, in broad computer games, it's going to recommend specific games. It knows you're into computers, but then it's going to use the data you mentioned to maybe target specific games, just as an example. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I was just looking to see if there's anything. Uh, the, again, I really recommend this article. One of those scary, not really related. To yeah, I typed data. it in, so I'll, I'll read it. Yeah, one of the crazy things um, was that, uh, let's see, I think it was Hulu. Hulu or Netflix, one of them was, oh, Hulu. Hulu's decision not to encrypt streams means people who watch its shows can have their viewing habits tracked by third parties. So the, the stuff you're watching on Hulu is not encrypted. So anybody watching the information coming into your house or leaving your house could see the show title and the runtime and all that stuff. On its own, seemingly innocuous. What the article found was that the TV that Hulu was playing on was smart enough to intercept that data and send it back to the TV manufacturer Jeez. And so the TV manufacturer could sell your Hulu viewing habits to other interested parties. That's wild, man. That's like... But they couldn't do that with Netflix because the TV couldn't unencrypt the Netflix traffic. Right. So... Hmm. That's disturbing, actually. <sighs> and it's things like that where you might not even be able to... You know, I'm speaking my first for myself here but you might not be able to say why it's disturbing but it just is <laughs> it feels off right it just feels off like on but the surface has... yeah do i why should anybody be bothered if somebody else knows they're watching that 70 show or something whatever but it, yeah i don't know it's more than that so moving on to um apple one of the biggest data collectors out there because they happen to have just about the best data collection device ever. And it's in almost everybody's hands. Um, So again, the big data thing to bring that to the map program, 
um, you know, you might wonder why the roots are so amazing. Or sometimes it even, uh, so Alex and I one time did, this is with Google Maps, but it's the same applies. We did a road trip that was somewhere around 12 hours and Mm -hmm. we plugged in the destination and, and we just decided to let Google Maps make all the decisions for us, even though we, mm-hmm. we knew we had mapped it out on paper. And generally speaking, we knew what we were doing. And I don't remember the exact you know comparisons, but it told us an, an estimated arrival time. And if you adjusted for our stops and getting food or whatever, this thing had routed us past traffic and at one point, multiple took us, times, multiple times, took us off the highways. We were going through neighbors, neighborhoods. At one point, we're trying to cross multiple states, so you're not trying to go through a neighborhood. And mm-hmm. this thing got us there within an absurd amount of accuracy in mm-hmm. terms of the time. And that's yeah, we all. Were, well, and we, you had so much time in front of you early on in the journey where you could see it. Say, you know, estimated time would change by half hour increments or something like that as it was readjusting. Right. Uh, you know, as a traffic, uh, you know, impedance would show up, it would readjust, the time would go back down. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. And we would, we would watch it, you know, we would watch it, we would have the map plugged in and we would watch it and ha- it would have one route that was, okay, let's say we were going to take a road four hours down the line. But two hours later, two hours before we're supposed to take that road, traffic is so bad that we would watch it reroute the road that we were supposed to take in two hours. Mm-hmm. It was insane. And that's all yeah, because Google Maps and Apple Maps or whatever has access to millions of previously uh, of users previously traversing those very same roads. Mm-hmm. It knows at what time and what traffic conditions they did it in, how long it took. They know all that stuff. So they can take your individual experience and compare it to millions and millions and millions of other experiences and then estimate the best route and how long Mm. it's going to take. I wonder how much worse traffic would be if if Google Maps and such were not a thing. Like if traffic levels and the amount of cars on the road increased the same way and they're at the same level they are, but nobody was having these optimized routes traffic would be far worse than it actually is because all this is doing is redistributing cars to get everybody everywhere as efficiently as possible, really. It, yeah. In theory, everybody was using Google Maps. It would be... Here's a fun... This would be fun. And Well, might somebody might get hurt, so maybe not fun, but it would be really interesting <laughs> if all of a sudden for like three days, Google Maps, every single map, the GPS system just went down. Because as you were just saying, you know, we've had Google Maps now for 10 years or whatever it is. So we know what life is like with it. Mm-hmm. And if it were all of a sudden just to immediately go back to not having it, I, I'm willing to bet you're right that things would get hectic. And a lot of people just stay inside. <laughs> I'm not going out. <laughs> Google Maps isn't working. I'm out. So, so I think there's some people that just rely on it even. Just completely. Just completely. Which, which I get. Because yep. our experiment, I mean, it works. It works. It works. It works. There's no doubt about it. Um, so keeping with Apple, one of the things I don't... So spotting trends and like, what are they doing with this data? So I was reading about Apple and what collection stuff they keep on you. Mm-hmm. It's not much, actually. 
Well, uh, well okay. I guess what I would they disagree, but what they store unencrypted or anything like that that's probably not very high hmm. but i know comparatively speaking to other like the amount of um usable data that there's that apple could view from my apple maps usage versus google maps from google maps usage is is far different from oh, my okay. understanding interesting well, one thing... Like, yes, they do use it to improve their product, but as far as tracking and selling data... Oh, okay. That, that doesn't happen. And that's actually, I think, um, you know, one thing that, that makes them a little bit different. Well, and, okay, so and actually now we're of the same mind, because I was going to say, what I was just about to bring up is a way to improve their product. It doesn't necessarily... It, it wouldn't help anybody else, really. But it's, it's really interesting and kind of creepy, but... Uh, it's fascinating, I suppose. So they collect the phone is got the uh, uh, what are the things accelerometers in the phone, mm-hmm. so it can mm-hmm. sense movement, right? Yep. The output of the phone is literally goes down to the level of um, um, he. I'll just say he. He is currently walking. He's mm-hmm. getting out of the car. So the phone knows the difference between walking when you're getting out of the car. If you're on a bicycle, if you're running, those, those ones seem easy. But like the, the getting out of the car one, that blew me away. It knows, and I, I was watch, I was reading an article and, and actually watched a, an investigative report on this part. So they, I, I have reasonable confidence. You know, it is smart enough to know the difference between you sitting in the car and it is programmed, and they deem it noteworthy enough to track the fact that you are getting out of the car. Like, that's significant data to them. Well, is the pattern such that it's, um, you know, you have the, the micro motions, relatively speaking, of the phone and the accelerometers, but then you also follow that up. Let's say with you got car, in the yeah. car, then with the car going 50 miles an hour, you know that that's not somebody walking or riding a bike. Um, and then subsequently followed by them doing the same type of motion in reverse, getting out like that, that pattern. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's, excuse me, I think that's accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, this one, I don't necessarily have a problem with because it's interesting. I, I, I would like to ask them, I'm curious, like, what problems are you seeing or what areas of improvement is that sort of data showing you? Like, what does he's getting out of the car? Like, why do you need that? I'm, I would be curious to well, know I like, can, what, I can, what that's telling. I can oh, guess. actually, you might know. Yeah, you might know. <laughs> so... I forget when they introduced this feature, but do not disturb in the car. Okay. So it uses, um, if you allow the phone to, it will use this exact thing to detect when you're in the car and it will turn on do not disturb so that you don't get texts and things like that. Um, And then ideally it will turn it off when you get out. Now, I do have that come on. Sometimes it doesn't come on reliably when you start the car, but more often than not, it does not turn off reliably when you get out. Hmm. Um, so it's using, you know, usually it engages when it detects that you're in motion up to a certain speed. Got it. Um, but then it, it doesn't like to turn off a lot of the times. So I bet you, if you're able to come up with that pattern a little better, you might be able to have that mode turned off by the time the person gets out of the car and actually looks at their phone again. Okay, nice. So that's what I would think. That's yeah. No, yeah. that makes sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. 
and and that all goes to improving the customer experience so right yeah so i mean if this if things are being used to make a product better then it's hard to argue yeah um but no i didn't have a problem necessarily with them collecting that data i was just i was just shocked that it they even bothered to yeah it is i mean it seems yeah like a waste timer it's just crazy yeah so that's that's probably enough we can start i can start wrapping this up we're we're getting close to the two hour mark here um some other honorable mentions for ultimately the purpose of big data is to spot trends that you didn't otherwise Mm -hmm. know about so i was thinking the financial world you know the stock market if you had you could if you could come up with a way to spot trends that other people don't know about you could probably make a lot of money uh manipulating the stock market that way Um, i bet you there's some certain groups that would lobby against that uh bet (laughs) (laughs) um war if you were able to study the average outcome of a firefight you might be able to spot a way to improve the safety of your troops or make them more deadly Hmm. um a really scary one this is actually credit to a radio lab podcast from years and years ago (laughs) the I, I, I must sound like such a conspiracy nut sometimes. Um, okay. This is—it's proven. It's not even my. Go listen to the podcast. Um, there's this whole satellite track. I'm sorry, it's not satellites. Uh, it's a plane. They fly a plane over a city, and they just continually take photos of it, and they mm-hmm. download all those photos to a database. Um, this one doesn't really have machine learning in it, but, and then if a crime happens. What you can do is, let's say a bank is being robbed. Mm-hmm. You can look at the bank on the day, the day that you know it was being robbed and you see the getaway van. Now you just hit the rewind button and you just watch the van and you just see where the van goes back in time and maybe they're parked it at their hideout or whatever. Oh, huh. So yeah, they have planes flying over. Uh, the FBI just has planes flying over. Um, they look like little Cessnas. They're just flying over major cities. I see them all the time in Denver. Really? Um, yeah. Just taking and pictures. And they're just continuously taking pictures. I don't like that very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shocking. Neither do I. But here's the thing, though. The, the, if used for good, this is like the, the Batman movie. I'm not a huge Batman buff but at the end of one of the batman movies they basically build this exact system but with cell phones basically morgan freeman can tap into every single cell phone and using like audio mapping some crazy movie stuff oh like identify yeah yeah exactly but he in the movie he destroys it at the end of it because the potential for evil is is too great (laughs) i got my use out of it now nobody else can exactly exactly (laughs) Because he's all pissed off at Batman for making him build it. And he's like, I need it. And whatever. Anyway. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, the, you know, if you, if somebody gets kidnapped and you know the color and the location and everything of the van that they got kidnapped in, this system would be invaluable. Sure. Sure. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So we're going to end. Any, oh, um, go any climate related examples just so we could tie it back to uh, our first one? Well, not that I prepared, but you could spot. I mean, if if you're collecting ice, I'm sorry, uh, ice core data out of Greenland, Mm -hmm. and you've got enough of it, you might spot that 
for a certain number of years, you know, the trend of nitrogen content went way down. Mm -hmm. Which I wonder if you could collect data somehow on the way people are like recycling and creating trash and like see where, I don't know, see certain trends and and then improve people's behavior somehow. Hmm. Maybe. The, the trouble there is kind of like the the Large Hadron Collider. You really got to, and one of the critiques we're going to, we'll end on critiques of the whole big data thing here is that it's only good as, it's only as good as the data going in. Right, sure. So if you have shitty data going in, whatever conclusions you draw from it are not going to help you. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's probably the biggest criticism is, and I, I, ultimately to me, I think this is just haters hating, but because... Sure, there's ways to use it negatively, but I don't really see any actual downside of doing this and using data in this way because it's the problems that the, that some people have leveled at it, like bad data going in equals bad data going out. It doesn't matter the scale of the data. A small data set, if it's shitty, is still shitty. Right, so sure. So to me, I, I was trying to find... Yeah, that you holds know, true regardless of exactly. machine learning. So I, was trying to fu- I was trying to find you know criticisms of this to give a different perspective, but it just seemed like people bitching because they missed out on the trend. Yeah. I think when using it in the appropriate way, all what it's really doing is just optimizing things. Exactly. In a broader sense, which is, which is great. I mean, going back to the simple example of the light bulbs, if you can, you know, as the light bulb manufacturer, it's probably good to... Um, Let's say you're designing bulbs to last 10 million hours, but you realize that no one has ever, you know, used the bulb in even close to that amount. So you could maybe reduce the amount of resources going in to make your product, thus reducing, you know, cost emissions or, or costs yeah. or whatever, something like that. I mean, sure, it's optimization in a good way, as long as it it's paid forward, I guess. But a um, couple other, again, I, I don't really buy into these. The only one that I buy into really is, is uh, privacy concerns, which enough said on that. Um, <laughs> one of the terms um, was just how people, uh, a certain segment of the population is, at least of the corporate world, is it's a buzzword and people don't know what they're using or what, they're, what they mean when they're actually saying that word. And so it was just... People are criticizing the fad, if you will. Big data or? Yeah, big data. Yeah. 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 Because um, it's true, though, because like a lot of corporations and stuff, you know, they jump on this sort of thing and it can mislead mm-hmm. them because if you shortchange your your effort to collect big data, if you get crappy data in or whatever, if you don't do it right, you, you do more harm than good, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've experienced in in my day is um deciding that you're going to collect data before you know how to do anything with it yeah which, yeah which was that's... an interesting problem so can you say and what a little you were, scary can you say what you were collecting um not really oh, i'd damn. rather not online okay i got you i got you <laughs> i can tell you after yeah okay uh, but suffice to say and i i, I would imagine a lot, I mean, or, you know. I yeah, I mean, in, in general, it was just it was just user data. We'll just put it that way. It was user data, and we wanted to make trends from it. Okay. But we didn't know how to do it before we implemented the technology to collect it. Dude, that is human nature. 
which is scary. It's <laughs> so funny. I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but I want it. <laughs> it's like hoarding data. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. So, yeah, big data. Really uh, nice. powerful. And with great power comes great... Re- That's the dumbest. I'm going to stop. <laughs> Really inspired by like the Batman stuff and, and whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening right, yep. this week. Um, t-shirts on Amazon, wanderingberrycenter oh, at gmail.com. A great holiday gift. Get oh, yourself that's, a t-shirt. That's re- the Wandering Barrios cereal t-shirt. I mean, I have one. It's That'll fantastic. brighten anybody's day. If you it's want to fantastic. make somebody's Christmas morning, come on. <laughs> Hit us up at wanderingberrycenter at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. Instagram is probably the best place, actually, to interact. Um, mm-hmm. Alex is uh, running that ship, steering that committee. Oh, and, yeah. Sometimes, um, sometimes left, sometimes right. That's right. Um, I think that's it. I'll catch you next Hang week. On. Well, Hang on. Hang on. Yep, steering yep. committee. By nature of the name, it can never be going straight. Because to be steering it, it's got to be going left or right. That's your definition of steering, though. Can I... Am I steering? I mean, by your assertion. I don't think you're steering if you're going straight. Okay, okay. Well, shit. There's. I think you might have just solved... (laughs) (laughs) That's the problem with steering communities. They always feel like they need to be pulling one way or the other instead of just letting it ride. That might be the most insightful, and I'm being serious right now, that might be the most insightful thing that's ever occurred on this podcast. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's leave it at that. (laughs) See you next episode. Yep.